Hello, everyone. Welcome to another fabulous episode of the Free Money Podcast, the only podcast in the entire world. Um, on this episode, we've got Calster's Head of Sustainable Investment and Stewardship Strategies, Kirsty Jenkinson, and she's talking to us about all sorts of great stuff. We can exclusively break here that she just bought her first house in the United States, which is really cool. You'll hear more about that later. Um, but, you know, we talk about like what it means as a practical matter to make a net zero commitment by 2050 at a place like Calster's that's been a vocal advocate of ESG since 2004. Um they're also planning to escalate their level of shareholder engagement. What does that mean as a practical matter? Um, and then we talk about, you know, they're ramping up private investments with an eye towards climate solutions and thinking particularly about stuff like affordable housing as part of that, which I would say is, you know, kind of squarely outside of a lot of people's kind of gut assumptions about what those investment uh, opportunities might target. After that, as always, we talk about various hard things that we're encountering and our various attempts to build things. And then we answer questions from you in the Dear Ashby segment that everyone knows and loves. This time we talk about what our seed starting setups look like, um, Ashby's experience with the Russian Sovereign Wealth Fund, and assuming governance and disclosure are management, managed properly, what proportion of a long-term investment portfolio should be invested in private assets? And then if you stick around through all that till the end, you'll get our gold, gold, good garden tip. Um, if, if you want to skip a, if you want to skip straight to the interview, go ahead and jump to 18 minutes in. If not, settle in for another hour of wonderful free money. But first, it's time for Sharkbait, the Disclosure Pirate. Take it away. Ahoy, free money podcast listeners. I'm Sharkbait Buckley, the Disclosure Pirate. And I'm here to set ye straight about what's going on with this here show. Sloan Ortel works for Invest Vegan LLC, a New York registered investment advisor. Ashby Monk works for Stanford University, Adapar, Future Proof, Long Game, and various startups. All opinions expressed by either Sloan or Ashby are entirely their own, and do nay reflect the opinions of their crew or any company. Clients who invest vegan may maintain positions in securities and strategies discussed in this podcast. Advisory services are only offered to clients or prospective clients where Invest Vegan and its representatives are properly licensed or exempted and a client agreement has been executed. Arr. Here comes the money. Here we go. Money talks. Here comes the money. Welcome to the Free Money Podcast, where we bring you the Brooklyn Bay Area consensus Ooh. about institutional investing that you desperately crave. Yo. Woo, woo, woo. woo. This. Woo. I have, an, I have an opening statement, too. This is the podcast where we free money from the shekels of short-termism and empower the mm. world's investors to meet their needs while also meeting the needs of us all. We also Preach. work diligently to get other people to pay for our own gardens in the form of <laughs> offset technology. <laughs> yeah, it's a real, you know, it, it's sort of, you know, what you what you might call a social enterprise. You might call it that. We also try accents from around the world and butcher them. <laughs> I mean, yes, by we, uh, definitely that's, that's all of us. We all but, do that. We all, I mean, yeah, everybody in the show is encouraged to just try on accents. Um, I don't think people realize that we mean the free money. Like we're out there yep. looking for deals, uh, yep. for you. 
and that we should have more, you know, just more opportunities for people to get free stuff. That's a great point. That's a great point. You know, I, I, I realized um, I, I was like looking into weird merch ideas uh, a couple nights ago, and it turns out you can get custom Crocs charms. Are you a Crocs user? I have. I think I've had a pair of Crocs in my life. Not recently. <laughs> Are you rocking Crocs right now? I I, I I picked up a bunion early in the pan, like, you know, a couple of months ago, I guess, in the middle of the winter. And uh, the Crocs were my way out of it. And uh, now they're pretty much my only shoe. And mm. uh, now that COVID is going away, I'm like having to face the reality that I may someday have to go to an event that I cannot wear Crocs to. Uh, yeah. You know, I love it. So like, you know, I picked up a, a bunion. It gives it a vibe like this was, you know, you had a choice of matter. It's like, yeah, I picked up a root canal on the way. <laughs> My feet decided to, like, let me down, basically, is what really happened. Oh, oh my gosh. So anyway, so the, our commitment here, listeners, we're going to find lots of good stuff for you. That's why you're here. Uh, yep. But before we get into the news, I've been, I have to say, Sloan, I've been, I've been solo parenting. Uh, oh yeah, I've been solo parenting. So people are back out there traveling, including my spite, my spouse, spicy, your spice, the spice of your life, (laughs) the spice (laughs) should be like, why do you call me spice? It'll be like, I just have to live. (laughs) Um, yeah. So yeah. Wife spice, the, uh, the, or Courtney spice, the, the six Courtney spice, the spice woman. She was one of the sisters. What were they called? Spice women. What was the band called? They're the Spice Girls. They're Spice, Spice Girls. Oh my god! <laughs> I was like, literally, I forgot it was the Spice Girls. <laughs> anyway, solo parenting. I find this is just my little tip because it's been two years since anybody's traveled. It's a little bit easier. Uh, I'm not saying that my kids haven't had pizza three nights in a row. They have, but it's a little bit easier. Because um, I think the threats work better when kids are older. Mm. Anyway, mm. out there, threats. You know, you're like, I am going to take your phone away. It's not hard for me to do. And they're like, that wouldn't be that hard. You know, you can see it in. Mm. You know, you're like, yeah, that phone is there. Then I'll have it, and then you won't have it. <laughs> and you're, you're still small. You, you're big, but you're smaller than me, and I can put this on a high shelf. And yeah, you, like you won't be able to reach it. There, it'll go somewhere you won't find it. And then I'll have it. So anyway, here we are Friday. I'm glad Courtney comes back tomorrow. So it'll be uh, <laughs> good. Anywho, you'll be you'll, you'll be liberated from uh, or or at least you know kind of joined in uh, the threat making enterprise. Uh, yeah, yeah, we're you know. very good at threats together. Uh, we're joined <laughs> up. I've got some good news here. Hmm. Are you ready for some news? I mean, I feel like I feel like we could use some of that. Yeah, well, here is some good news then. Um, pension funds, according to the firm Willis Towers Watson, which is a the pension, mega consultant. It's a mega consultant. They do pension fund consulting, so they should know what I'm about to tell you. And they're telling me and you, Sloan, that pension funds, as of now, have fifty-seven trillion dollars in assets. Um, which is why we study them so hard. These organizations, yeah. um, you know, we talk about the asset owner community having, you know, more than hundred trillion, but just in pension funds now. 
are 57 trillion. So um, to me, that kind of is a reminder of how important these organizations are in the world. And I'm always shocked that fewer people are, as few people studying them as, as do. You know, it, it, I think that one of the things, a corollary to that is that the people who do study them are so often just like alarmist, um, you know, and, and not really like, you know, the type of people who engage with like the underlying realities. Like we, we've talked about this book that I bought off the Internet a while ago uh, called Pension Fund Socialism that's written uh, by uh, Peter Drucker, of all people. Oh, yeah. Uh, he's quite good. You know, he's a good, he's a good yeah, author. That Peter Drucker. He's a great. I mean, he's like one of the one of the management scholars of our generation, but he's like, you know, a pretty right wing guy. And in the 80s, he was like, you know, these pension funds are gaining a lot of power. And if they get good at listening to uh, their constituents and implementing responsible investing, it could ruin the economic system that we have that's built on extraction and and, <laughs> and shareholder prominence. Um, he was you know, right. But it's <laughs> yeah, I mean, except yeah. for the ruined part. Except for the ruined part. But the fact that the pension funds could have a huge influence, correct? Ruin? No, yeah, but the, the straight so. line from the the straight line from could to will. Uh, yeah, I yes, I think we're you Drucker. and I would beg to differ with them. I love that you're calling out the Drucker. He's he, you know, he is actually quite influential between right and left leaning folks because he started to capture the fact that. Um, that pension funds have this huge role. And Gordon Clark wrote a book probably about a two decades after pension fund socialism called pension fund capitalism. Mm. And but capitalism kind of paints the portrait and that's more constructive of, um, you know, a principal layer in the capitalist system that is actually taking the long term seriously and not just being extractive. And, and I think it was mm -hmm. that book not the socialism, but the capitalism around pension funds that kind of sent me on the trajectory that I am today and realizing, you know what, if we get how these funds invest right, you can really fix capitalism. Yeah. And Gordon Clark, of course, being not just the author of a good book, but also your PhD thesis advisor. True. And uh, <laughs> co-authored a number of books with me. Yes. <laughs> yeah. This is the self-promotion part of the story. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, yeah, the, go buy it. socialism book. <laughs> yeah. I'll like, be like, hey, that, go that buy just... all of Gordon's books. And then they'll yeah, be yeah, yeah. You know, then I'll get a free <laughs> cup of coffee. Hell yeah. All right. Next story. Free money for Ashby. Free money. <laughs> We're after it. Next story comes to us from Abu Dhabi and uh, relates to the Abu Dhabi Investment Authority, which some people believe are is maybe, we don't know because they're secretive, maybe the biggest sovereign fund on earth. Um, mm. And this is a quote. Adia has cut dozens of jobs over the past year as part of a $272 million cost-saving program. And hmm. I, I think this is good news and bad news for people that want to work at sovereign wealth funds. The good news is, boys, though, some people are making a lot of money managing sovereign wealth, dozens of jobs equaling up to $272 billion. That's a that's, lot. Yeah, that's a, that's a pretty good average comp. Yeah. So that's <laughs> the good news. The bad news is these specific jobs are gone. So mm. you're not going to get any of those jobs um, that were clearly high paying. But, you know, it's, it struck me that, like, 
the, the the asset owner community used to be notorious for underpaying talent and kind of relying yeah. on affinity and nine to five work weeks, you know, um, for recruiting talent. And now we're into a space where 24 people could make, you know, almost 300 million bucks. Fine. 36 people make 300 million bucks. Like, it's crazy that, the, you know, if we're going to take it on face value. I'm sure there's some nuance yeah. I'm missing here, but I didn't do the research. I mean, yeah. I mean, like, why would why would anyone do that? I mean, it, it, you know, it, it, like, unless the Saudis are being really sneaky and like, you know, dozens, of course, dozens means like eight, dozen. dozen. The Emirates. The Emirates. Oh, yes. Not the Saudis. The Emirates. Ah, wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> All good. Yeah, very good. Very good job, Sloan. But yeah, like, unless they're being very secretive, usually you see these asset owners making the opposite mistake, right? Where, you know, it's like not enough people, not enough uh, comp, right? And, you know, the and then the fees wind up being indirect, right. uh, you know, in the in the form of like, you know, stuff charged by consultants, stuff charged by asset managers. Um, you know, I, I guess at least if they're overpaying people, they can do it in-house. That's great. I love it. Yeah, so... It's almost like we've been doing this podcast together for a few years um, because you sound <laughs> like me, which is like, you're paying it anyway to somebody like somebody's yeah. charging to, to invest yeah. your money. And so if you're paying it internally, at least you can see where it's going and maybe you even keep the money in your community. And now people, you know, are driving around in nicer cars um, and they're, you know, planting beautiful trees and whatnot. But if you, if you aren't paying it internally, then you're going to pay it externally, or you're going to have to change your expected return target, which nobody wants to yep. do. Um, yep. So yeah, I agree with you. I think this is, it's interesting to see this level of compensation kind of becoming more normal. Uh, we, we all knew that like organizations like GIC were, were paying incredibly well in Singapore. There's been great pay in the Canadian funds for 20, 30 years. And now in the Middle East, um, you know, it's clearly there. Um, I'm guessing some of this is are the expat roles that are being um, cut in part yep. because the the domestic population is now ready to take it, step into those roles, which was always a challenge. I remember oh, wow. when I like went that. to Abu Dhabi, I looked at the wall of one of the sovereign funds. I think it was uh, the council. And it had pictures of sand dunes with Mustangs on uh, carpet. And I was looking at it, it was like, that's here where I'm standing. And and what was so shocking is it wasn't like a hundred years ago, this was a sand dune. It was like when Mustangs existed, which was like sixties and seventies, this yep. whole place was a sand dune. So you think about how much like development has occurred and like the fact that they've got to fill all these jobs. Anyway, you get it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, well, it's like, I think, you know, a lot of people forget that Singapore was not an industrial country at all, right? Like that, you know, and like, I mean, a lot can change in 60 years. Um, if you have some, like, if you have a sweet sovereign fund backing up your internal upskilling plan. It's true. Last bit of news before we get to the break. University mm. of Virginia Investment Management Corporation Ooh. Ooh. For sure. mm -hmm. says um, it's going to go net zero. 2050, which huh. is fabulous. And it will, this is the bit that's the news, it will be releasing a detailed net zero plan in 2022. Now, huh. I read the initial tentative plan. It's very high level again, which we've been calling out for a while. 
But I love that they've made a commitment to release the detailed plan this year because too few of these plans have been published. And the ones that have been published have not been detailed. So it'll be <laughs> very interesting to see um, what Uvimco says it's going to do to get its portfolio to net zero. Yeah, it, the, like there's so many different approaches that you could take on that, right? Like, cause, I mean, obviously there's just like the dimension of emissions that's like a big deal here. But, um, you know, as you think about emissions across the, the entire a diversified portfolio, there's a whole bunch of tweaks and tips that you can do that you can make, right? Like some folks oh, are sure. investing in housing, which, you know, I know our, we have a, a guest lined up who's going to talk to us a little bit about. Oh, not to tease that, not to tease that too much before she shows up, but uh, <laughs> the um, but yeah, you know, you have everything from like investing in housing to just like, you know, funding clean tech and carbon sequestration solutions to question mark, question mark, question mark, using the ingenuity of the investment community to try and, you know, like move some capital towards solutions. For sure. I mean, look, I think um, with the with the net zero portfolios here, like we got to measure, we got to trace, we got to track, and then we got to offset. And and I don't really think I've seen an asset owner detail just how they're going to do all that. Like, yeah, the measurement yeah. is going to be very hard. Then the decision on how you like offset what you're not going to get to net zero with, you know, is it avoidance? Is it, you know, you're pulling carbon out of the air. So a lot of this stuff. Yeah. Anyway, it's, this is going to happen among many, many, many clans. And so it's almost as if this is like a catalyst for change, which is why I'm so interested in it, that will take place across thousands of investment organizations, large ones. Yeah. I mean, like, I think that you know, we probably need to, you know, uh, flagellate ourselves a little bit for the amount of crap that we've been giving to this, this whole net zero 2050 movement, because, you know, I mean, it is, you know, if nothing else, a rallying point for people to talk about. Uh, Does flagellate you know. mean self-congratulate? <laughs> um, I mean, mean it, yourself? <laughs> it means hate yourself. That's what I thought. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, like for a certain kind of person, I think that could be a congratulatory gesture. I saw the Da Vinci Code. Uh, so that was one. Yeah. That was exactly what I was thinking of. Really? Yeah. That seemed yeah. pretty brutal. Yep. Yeah. The, the For those who, you know, are not up on, you know, the the literary classics and, you know, the associated film media, um, the, we're talking about a, a, you know, a member of a Catholic sect called Opus Dei that, uh, you know, wears a, a, a nice, um, I guess, a barbed wire garter. Um, yeah, cuts correct. into his leg. Um, yeah, and, uh, and and periodically hits himself with a with a leather um, cat o nine tails. Now available in the free money <laughs> podcast atelier. <laughs> you know, yeah, maybe what, what we should what I should do is like you know just source one of these these very rare items that we come up with and like auction it off uh for charity you know so we could get you know the official free money cat o nine tails you know uh, we don't even need we don't even need that what we need to do is create an nft where somebody owns mm. the moment where we created the idea of the garter <laughs> money whatever self-flagellation toolkit uh we don't even need to make mm. it the wall we just created an NFT. That's a great point. Moment, you know, that's the beauty of the NFTs. You don't, you don't actually have to do anything. 
You know, that that is a fascinating, you know, innovative financing model, Ashby. I can see. I can... <laughs> That's what I do. Yeah, I think creatively yep. about how to, you know, finance important projects. And this is what, you know, and so I Well, like... you know, I mean, funnily enough, we've got somebody in the waiting room who thinks, you know, critically about how to finance important projects. And her name is Christy Jenkinson. She is the head of sustainable investment and stewardship strategies at CalSTRS, which is the California State Teachers Retirement Service or System? I'm not sure. System. Yeah, no, uh, that's good. You, you don't want to look up that and do too much research hey. ahead of time. So it is definitely. <laughs> well, 45 minutes. Okay, I've seen a minute. Hello, Christy. Oh, 45 minutes we got you. I heard it. No. You know what? You won't believe this, but I'm actually, we've just bought our first house in the U.S. Oh, good. We got you. And my husband was just yelling up at me saying, you know, we need to be there at 1015. I was like, yeah, it's fine. <laughs> yeah. We'll get you out of here 30 minutes or less. I promise. I'm so sorry that you heard me yelling to him. He was like, oh. you know. That is so on brand for this podcast. Oh, yeah. I have uh, guests screaming at people off camera. Uh <laughs> Yeah, we haven't had any technical difficulties, which is fabulous. Well, this is incredible. I can't believe it. I'm in a, I'm in a, like a whole studio. I feel like this is very cool. Oh, <laughs> yeah, that's great. Because now the listeners will know just how much technology we bring, you know, because we don't often let on how good we are yeah. at this. No. Well, I was listening to a couple of the ones. And so I, I, I've now heard your, I've heard your voice before. Um, Actually, but slow now. I was like, okay, now I know what we're talking awesome. about. So I've got a little bit of background research, so I hope I'm going to do all right. You're going to do all right. I see you have listened to this podcast and still agreed to come on it. Is, I think, a really good sign. Uh, <laughs> I think we've worked our game slot. Uh, we can put it for fish. Kirsty, we brought you. That's true. I'm say- oh, sorry. Yeah. I think there's the delay that we were always expecting would happen. But let me, I'll just keep talking while I'm talking. So, Kirsty, we brought you on because we want to hear all about the work you're doing at Calsters. And one of the things we've been talking at length on this podcast about are the, the 2050 pledges to get to net zero. In fact, the very last story in our news segment was how University of Virginia just made a commitment to publish their detailed plan in 2022. So it's not just their 2050 commitment, but they promise they're going to get us the detailed plan here. Um, and I know that this is a big part of your work at Calsters. You guys have been big advocates of ESG since 2004, um, way ahead yep. of a lot of other organizations. Um, and so for you, what does the net zero commitment mean in terms of like practical realities at Calsters? Gosh, a lot of practical realities. And, and kind of the first thing is it, it does sound slightly ironic. You know, you're like, well, we're going to do this by 2050 and everybody rightly so. Whether it's us or whether it's a government or whether it's a city or a mayor, it's like, yeah, really interesting. But what are you doing right now, mm. and how are you going to work back? So I think the first thing is, is we've been really clear that it's it's the direction of travel, and and when you set the direction of travel, it helps you work back from the direction of travel about what it's what you need to do to get there. And so honestly, I think the biggest kind of practical reality is what's the level of change that needs to happen within a very large, complex organization like ours and an investment branch that you need to start doing as of today, yesterday and, and three weeks ago to enable you to kind of set each foot in front of one another because you're going to be walking a different path for the next kind of, you know, 20, 30 years. So let me break that down into sort of what does it mean practically? Um, to me, it, we've tried to put it through this lens of it's going to change and alter the way we think about risk. It's going to change and alter the way we think about investment opportunity. And it's going to change and alter 
the way that we think about how we use our influence and how we collaborate with the market because we can manage risk and opportunity within the Calster's sort of, you know, headquarters, let's call it the, fr- the, the, the branch that we, we all sit in. But if we're all going to get to net zero, it doesn't matter what we do within our portfolio. It's actually what happens in the broader universe. And so there's that elements of, you know, influence and collaboration. So happy to walk through more details of each of those, but it's such a fundamental shift about all that we are that you have so much sort of change required. I want to double click on one. Um which is the change the way you think about risk. Uh, we don't need to spend yeah. a, like, you know, half an hour talking about the, the weirdness of risk inside these organizations and how it often emerges out of like Chicago School of Economics and rational market, all this kind of weirdness, right? But yeah. one of the ways we talk about ESG at the Future Finance Council is calling it pre-financial risk. Um, and so when you're thinking about net zero and climate, like how does it become risk inside of Calsters? Well, it, it, it's it's down here again. You you can look at it in the conventional way, I suppose, and I say conventional because it's yeah. the last couple of years conventional, conventional around the physical and the transition risks. And so it, it's it's right. We are an op- operator and an owner of real assets and real um, you know buildings. How will the effects of the climate change the risks and the not only physically to their being, but also to the costs to run those those sort of entities? So that's the tangible bits which I I think we can all wrap our heads around. Yeah. The transition piece is obviously way more challenging because that's around, well, what does it mean for the price of the things that I pay that it might be changing as a result of policy and other technological shifts? And we don't have, I think, as a general industry, a great handle on that. So we do at least have this framing of how do you break it down, but then it's it's really different what risks means for a public equity strategy and a passive equity strategy versus an active equity strategy yes. versus a real estate versus a private equity versus an infrastructure. And so one of the things I've been most fascinated by, but also most troubled by is how on earth do we then decompose climate risk into each of the specific asset classes in a meaningful way, but then also have a way of re-aggregating that risk up to a total fund perspective, because at the end of the day, we've also got to manage and run and think about risk at a total fund level. So it's really, that's the complexity, but also the curiosity that kind of just keeps me fascinated. And it's, it, I mean, I imagine that, you know, there's like, uh, you know, when you think about an organization the size of Calsters, you know, you, hundreds of billions of dollars, you know, tens of thousands of beneficiaries, like, you know, when I'm doing like carbon transition stuff, I can just be like, I'm vegan. I like vegan, I like vegan stocks and I want to buy these ones. Um, but like, you know, there's, I, I would imagine a multi-year messaging part, you know, uh, project with the community that depends on you guys that that's a core part of this is that right yeah that's a really good point to me because you touch on again the complexity of this topic versus perhaps more what i would call a traditional financial topic is like we we don't have to with our, our sort of the teachers that we serve when we talk to them about you know interest rates moving as we know they just have or whatever else it, it doesn't really kind of bring up any other dimensions for them other than does this mean for my mortgage, you know? But when you talk about climate change and when you talk about the environment, my goodness, it unleashes a whole host of kind of emotions and thoughts and impacts for them personally, but also about how they think and how they, they manage their money. And so trying to distinguish the role that we play to manage the investments and do that well versus all the other kind of um, factors that are influencing us and our behaviors and our emotions around climate is really complicated. And it's it's made more challenging. You know, we, here we are in California where the physical risks of, of climate are impacting a lot of our constituencies 
on a very regular basis. And, and we're all living through wildfires and smoke. And so, again, I think we have to spend, we are trying to get more focused on this, is how do we differentiate the actual investment decisions that we need to make from the more understandably emotional links that come with tackling climate change as well. And that's that's hard. One point I will add as well, can I, I make? Sorry, up. Waffle too much. Um, is around, back to my analogy with interest rates, is the thing I find hard about climate risk is we have a market infrastructure built to help us manage sort of interest rate rises. We know what the signals should be. We know to watch the minutes of the FOMC committee, which will then give us an indication that this is where the market should be heading. Therefore, we can start to price in the fact that, you know, we could be seeing a, a change in, in inflation and therefore that means interest rates will be affected. We don't have that same architecture for climate risk right now. We don't know, I think, as a, a big institutional investor, how to read the signals most appropriately to then say, well, what's that going to mean to the portfolio? And so that to me is one of the things that we, we will hopefully as a market get better at doing. Does that make sense? Oh my gosh. So much sense is being made by you that I want to like get our t-shirt like machine out and write it onto t-shirts. Um, <laughs> Never had that before. Yeah. Well, like I, part of me is like this, I keep telling people that we actually don't know how to price climate risk in dollar terms yet that like many organizations and I'm curious, I mean, this is off, like off script a little bit, but like, um, a lot of pension funds I know, like when you think about physical climate risk, they have like red, yellow, and green like categories that like when you talk to like the real estate investment teams, they're like, I don't know what to do with that. Like, what do I do with red? Yeah. You know, yeah. Um, yeah. I would know if you told me what it was going to do to my insurance contract to buy this Napa real estate because of the forest yeah. fire, like I would price that into my decision making. But yellow, what do I do with yellow? As a, as a climate risk. So anyway, I'm just curious yeah. if you guys have gotten beyond the red, yellow, green <laughs> labels of climate <laughs> risk and into actual dollars and cents. Well, yeah, and I, on specifically on, on real estate, and I'll give a real shout out to a group that we've worked on with this, Rhodium Group, uh, another sort of, you know, California-based, uh, um, I guess, research and analysis organization I've got the highest respect for, who I think have done a really good job at trying to sort of say, okay, this is what climate risk looks like in, in a sort of physical location. But for a real estate portfolio, they've helped us look at some of our properties to do this. They sort of said, well, what this means is it could require, you know, it's insurance premiums that will go up. It's it's the cost of um, the heating or the cooling that you're going to be requiring to keep that building at a certain, you know, um, temperature. And it's that, again, we haven't been able to do it for our entire portfolio. So as with often these things, it's a coverage issue as well as a kind of a... Um, uh, an ability to get the data and how to read it. But I think there's a, I'm seeing really interesting, uh, you know, signs that that's changing. And with groups like Rhodium who come with this sort of real understanding of climate, but who are trying to partner in a way that makes it economically, um, and gives us the sort of like the price signal, I think that's hugely transformative. And I hope we're just on the cusp of seeing more of those kind of collaborations and, and kind of initiatives. And then ultimately you do it for a couple of properties or you do it for a couple of areas. And as we all, understand this and they get more sort of, you know, broader, we can expand it to then our entire real estate portfolio, but we're not there yet, but that's the goal that I think we're working towards. I mean, I, I would imagine that that is, you know, it's not just a risk mitigation tool. It's also a, you know, an alpha generation tool, right? Like, you know, I mean, across the public re landscape, uh, you know, there's a significant correlation between sustainability performance and like, you know, 
stock performance. <laughs> yeah, yeah <laughs> um, absolutely. 100%. You know, so. Yeah. Yeah. So you could control your costs, you know, by adding insulation, by doing all sorts of other stuff. That's a very like sort of high engagement form of active yeah. management. <laughs> yes. That's a good way of putting it. Yeah. Like, so talk to me about, the, I guess the, there's a spectrum there, right? From like, you know, you have your, uh, you, you know, you have your real estate portfolio, you get the analytics, you decide to put insulation in them to save on energy costs. Um, to, you know, the more indirect holdings that are inter either intermediated through uh, an asset manager or our public. Um, you know, how are you, I mean, you're in all of it. <laughs> uh, how are you thinking about that spectrum and allocating, you know, your time and, and analytical resources? Yeah, it's all about prioritization, I think, and, and trying to make the right decisions and the, set the right priorities. And I suppose, again, back to sort of like, you know, made the pledge to net zero kind of what we've been working on a lot right now across all of the asset classes is just where should we, where should we spend the most time up front? Where is it easiest to get started? Where is it easiest to have the greatest impact so that it doesn't seem like this overwhelming task that we can't handle, you know, effectively? So it's very much around, okay, so where are our, our most significant relationships and should we work with those partners first you know where are our biggest exposures to what we think where climate risk is going to affect us and, and the transition to a net zero will be most impactful let's work on that area so it's trying not to do everything immediately it's trying to be sort of thoughtful around where can we have the single biggest impact in each area and start with that and go deeper and realize that it's not going to be perfect to start with that's uncomfortable for everybody but it's better to be imperfect and get started than to continue to just delay. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. One of the, I, I don't, I, I, I don't I, think we've got all that sorted. One of our questions that we were going to ask you here is around engagement versus divestment. And I just noted that like the California, state of California might obligate you to divest from, from fossil fuels. Up until now, how have you guys navigated this engagement and divestment conundrum that is so pervasive? It, it's very pervasive and it's very acute for us as a, a fund because um, we have a very, um, there's, there's a lot of people who come to our board meetings and, and you know, every every board meeting asks that we divest from fossil fuels. So we, we see it very sort of firsthand. Um, you know, people are always asking us to divest from fossil fuels as they believe that that, and I understand their point perspective, is a way to tackle climate change. I mean, I'll say personally, and this is an angle that, you know, I think perhaps support cross counters for is I just don't think it's the right theory of change I mean I build it back to like okay we 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 all want to address climate change that is the piece that I will always really crystal clear whenever I, whenever I speak to an investment advocate it's like let's agree what we agree on what I don't agree on is that this is this is the right way for us to play the influence that I think we have to make the most meaningful contribution I say that from two angles. One, I don't think it's the right decision financially for the fund because I think it's really hard to decide which companies that you want to divest from and that is always going to be shifting and changing. And I don't think it's right from the climate perspective because I don't actually think us divesting from fossil fuels is where we can have the greatest impact. I think we should be focusing on other areas that we are, like where can we invest in solutions to climate change? I want my team that I work with to be focusing on investing in solutions at scale because I think that ultimately is going to have a bigger impact on the climate than Calster spending time deciding and fighting against a divestment. So philosophically, but also practically, I'm personally very opposed to divestment and I've been very clear about that. Um, our board actually debated the um, 
the bill that has just been introduced into the climate legislature just a couple of weeks ago and also took a majority opposed position. There were a couple of members of our board who are supportive. So again, you know, there isn't complete consensus on this and I recognize that, but yeah, it's a tough one. Yeah, because you guys can, yeah, I mean, you played a big role in, you know, kind of the engine number one, uh, you know, kind of victory with Exxon and, you know, it's certainly like have a significant ability to be like the person who gets those phone calls and catalyzes those changes. Um, yeah, I mean, we, we like to think so. Again, I don't overestimate, you know, got, there's a lot of investors who are working now on this topic about how do you engage the highest emitters? You know, Climate Action 100 Plus and a lot of our partners, you know, I do think we're having an impact. I feel really proud about the role that we did play with engine number one, supporting them super early on in Exxon, because I feel like, you know, taking that kind of approach to certain levels of engagement hasn't worked. And when certain levels of engagement don't work, you have to be honest as an investor and say, right, we have to up the ante. And so our support of engine number one was like, we need to go beyond just, you know, a shareholder proposal and we need to actually change the board. And how can we change the board? Oh, here's an organization who is willing to stage a property fight. And so, yeah, we're, we're right behind you number one from day one and so that was a perfect confluence of if you say that you are in favor and you want to support engagement then it is also incumbent on us to escalate that engagement if the old engagement tactics are not working and think about other ways to be more effective and that could be through working as part of a bigger group so there's more investors which i think the industry has done super well in the last couple of years to get smarter at working together or you ask for something different, which is what we did at Exxon, which is, okay, the change is only going to happen if the board changes. So how do we get the board changed? Well, it's a good idea. I, I like talking about the engagement piece, but I think I also like naturally get attracted to like the climate solutions angle, which is like, let's go invest in like, I don't know, well, not, not like space travel and getting off earth, but like pulling carbon out of the air and like, you know, all of the wild clean tech stuff that blew up a decade ago was pretty fun, which is partly why so many people invested in it. And it was like a great set of things. Anyway, I'm rambling. But the point is, I know that you guys are starting to make pro more private investments in climate solutions. And that's part of your strategy. I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about the climate solutions component of your strategy and how it fits into the, the portfolio. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm glad you like talking about it because it's the one that I just find, again, super fascinating. It's the thing that gets me most excited every day about my job. Um, I just feel like this huge opportunity, um, you know, that we have to, to allocate capital in a way that will have a demonstrable positive impact on climate, but also will meet our risk return goals. And I'm 100% confident that because of the way that we've seen, you know, basic economics of shifting policy supports, shifting technology and shifting consumer preferences. You know, we are in a different world to climate tech 1.0 where a lot of those underlying factors didn't exist. And so the challenges were more acute. Um, I do believe we're in a different world now where it's the, there is sufficient deal flow and there is sufficient deal flow at scale for an investor like Calsters to be able to, you know, hit our risk return goals and be able to find the solutions. And so that's what excites me. But you asked practically, what does this mean for the portfolio? Well, the group that um, I work within, we have um, a current allocation to public assets. So we manage a public asset portfolio. And one thing that we've been working towards over the last year has been to expand our policy to allow us to invest in, in private uh, markets across real estate, infrastructure and, and private equity. And so 
we've been quite intentional at saying, okay, we're now going to have a dedicated part of the portfolio that will allow us to do two things, which is, again, again, all part of how it's structured, I think. It's, and, and it sounds, I hope it doesn't sound too in the weeds, but to me, this is, is so important, is if you're a large pension fund like Castors, it's like, well, how do you start investing in these kinds of solutions? Um, yeah. Because there are two challenges. One is a scaling issue, because some of these um, investment opportunities right now are perhaps not at the size or the scale that we would traditionally look at. So, or are my uh, asset class peers in private equity? Um, so, how do we allow us to get a sort of toe in the water in, in a sort of part of the portfolio that might operate at a different sort of smaller level? But as the opportunity grows, you have an opportunity to work with your colleagues in the other asset classes to say, right now it's sort of graduating, it can go into uh, another part of the portfolio over time. So, being able to sort of, you know, co-invest as we're doing alongside our private equity colleagues on a couple of deals where they will own half, we'll own half. And over time, we'll hopefully do more and more. And the private equity team is a huge team of assets. My goal and our goal is to do more and be able to scale it. That's really important. But the second piece as well is, I think for an institution like Houses, is we realized there's certain investments in this area that don't fit neatly into one of our traditional buckets. They don't fit neatly into the private equity bucket or the infrastructure bucket. It sits between them. It's a sort of typical betweener. If you don't have a, a space to be able to invest, then we wouldn't ever invest. So again, our portfolio allows us to do new investments that don't sit nicely in the other asset classes, but which we as Calsters should still have exposure to because it's above our actuarial rate of return. And it's aligned with what we want to do on climate change. So we've deliberately then allowed ourselves the flexibility to invest in these new opportunities that wouldn't fit elsewhere or are with partners that we haven't traditionally worked with and allows us just a little bit more, you know, freedom. Um, and again, the method will hopefully be we can prove and do more of that and then it can scale. And so you've got this sort of trajectory for new opportunities to scaling. And I feel that's the way we have to tackle it. Do, do you feel like there like there's a useful, like, benchmarking tool for what you're doing there because the it seems like it you know it would be very open to the criticism of like you know like where's the beef kind of uh you know for lack of a better word at a certain point yeah. um and because you're doing this very nuanced things essentially creating new funding mechanisms for new technologies it's hard to compare to existing alternatives yeah and and benchmark's been a real question for us on uh, you know we've we've said two things one the fun, the, you know, the strategies that we look after, they have to beat the traditional benchmarks because again, it's, this isn't concessionary. We're not doing this as a sort of concessionary finance. That's hopefully in a perfect world, we will be able to collaborate more with, you know, international financial institutions who could provide some of the concessionary capital and we could come in at scale. We're not there yet, but for this portfolio, we have to beat the underlying benchmark, but we also built it in a way that we have a little bit more flexibility for the first few years to allow us to, you know, enable these, this portfolio to mature over time and then be benchmarked. So at the, the start, we allow ourselves a little bit more flexibility, but ultimately the goal is that it will be benchmarked to the underlying asset class and it has to beat that. So yeah, it's a tough one because to be, you have to beat the underlying benchmark because that's what we're proving and that's what we have to do. But does benchmarking help in this situation? No, because you need some sort of customization. You know, if we're actually going to think about on our, even on our public market portfolio, how do we move towards a low carbon, you know, um, exposure? Do we need to start to think about how do we customize that benchmark to have more of a low carbon element on it? Because we don't want to be taking too much 
active risk on that side of things whilst also decarbonizing. So yeah, the market isn't helping us at this point in some of those areas, if, if that makes sense. I want to do a case study of your team. I've just decided in listening to you talk with my Stanford hat on. And part of that <laughs> comes from this realization that I, like your question, which is like, how do we start? Like, like I think, um, human humans have not invented a perpetual motion machine, but like the typical public pension plan comes close, just does the same thing <laughs> forever. Right. It's a monopoly fiduciary duty, prudent person rules, like not a lot of incentive to change. And in my experience, the way you change these plans is you reveal crises. And so you use the data and analytics to reveal something about the plan that the stakeholders didn't understand. And then there's a demand to change. And what I've just heard you describe is almost like an R&D unit that is preparing climate solution strategies for the mainstream investment teams that are public equities, private equities, real estate, but that you actually have a dedicated pool of capital where you aren't hamstrung by like, oh, here's our benchmark. Yes, you have to beat the seven and a half or whatever it is, seven and a half percent return target. Yeah, yeah you, of course you have to do that. And I think you will. Um, but it, you have this flexibility to think creatively. And I just want you to know, like I study this world, that is so rare that you like, like I can't think of other organizations that have that kind of innovation unit that has a mandate. Am I missed? Like, is it really, that's what it is? Yeah. I mean, what I will say there is it's, it's more, it's, I don't want to, you know, it, it's not just the changes of just our unit, the changes, the relationship with the underlying asset classes and how we work together. Okay. And so to be meaningful, it has to be, you know, and I, I've done a lot of thinking and we'll, you know, with, our teams have on, on how do you properly integrate this because what I've always said is I don't want to be the team who sits on the side just doing this that no one actually really cares about but we're the kind of like defense mechanism for everybody that's not interesting to me what's interesting is like you know we we develop trusted thoughtful part genuine partnerships with different colleagues and different asset classes about how to tackle investing in the future and the future that's changing and so I want to I, I basically say I'm, I want it to be a more profound than just like we have this sort of team that sits over there and knows a bit about climate. It, it's it's got to be more nuanced than that, which is, gosh, it's all about relationships and it's all about, you know, shared incentives and it's all around shared education opportunities because, you know, the team that I sit in, we, we don't have 30 years of private equity experience, whereas some of my colleagues do, but we do have a lot of climate and financial knowledge and, and it's when the two come together in a way of sort of mutual understanding and respect that i think the magic that sounds really cliched that's when the magic can happen and that's what we need to be humble enough to try and build together we love speaking, speaking of the magic yeah i mean like i'm looking forward to this case study uh it's gonna you be know, good because it's like one of the things like that i you know when i was poking around on your website um like i was really you know pleasantly surprised to see affordable housing included in in this you know broader uh kind of sustainability climate adaptation uh portfolio and, and like you know i guess you know two-part question in some to some degree like does the discussion about climate crowd out some of these other kind of you know huge wins like i mean california do you guys have an affordable housing problem i mean you just bought a house so <laughs> literally yeah no slowly you're absolutely right and 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 kind of 
you know, it's funny you asked that about is, is how does it crowd out? Because when we were thinking about, right, investing in solutions, sustainability solutions, where do we want to focus? You know, I remember a couple of my team and I, we were sort of sitting down, we were mapping out this, this mega landscape of all the different opportunities that we could invest in. And, and there's water here and there's like, you know, affordable housing here. And there's this, and, and we sort of presented that to a, a couple of people internally. And, and you could just see it was just, it was just too overwhelming and, and, and too like, whoa. So we're like, okay, back to basics. Let's start with, okay, let's start with climate solutions. Let's identify climate solutions. And we've got a sort of a nomenclature about that. And let's start with affordable housing because we have a real estate team that owns a number of kind of operators that has an understanding of affordable housing that realizes the gap that exists. So rather than trying to say we're going to tackle income inequality in through all of our impact, we're going to say, no, no, let's start with something that we know a little bit more, which is more tangible. We can get our heads, heads around together. And let's say we're going to expand our investments in affordable housing. So that's what we've done. And with our real estate colleagues who are just, you know, just fabulous to work with on this, that's something that they were going to be doing and focusing on, but we are bringing a kind of a combined shared energy to it that I think is is really exciting. And we just did our first deal together in an affordable housing opportunity in South Central LA. Um, so which is wow. really focused on, you know, underserved black and brown communities with a huge community impact. So it feels like a really good place to start. So yeah. And do you, I mean, just look, we could talk to you forever about that. And we, I know you got to go, um, but, but last quick question, like, do you guys, on this unit, invent new, like, uh, investment diligence requirements for these things. Like they may be more stringent, my guess is because you're kind of looking at it from two angles now, but are, do you have the flexibility to think about, well, like what, what should the diligence be and how should we be looking at this? Cause I find many times yeah. in public pension plans, this is kind of imposed on you from some, you know, bureaucratic overlord. No, I mean, it is. We do have um, some bureaucratic sort of processes that obviously we follow, but also, you know, due process. But I, I good question. I'll give you an example. We've just, we're running right now uh, a search for a new public equity manager pool um, to help us diversify our public equity sustainability focus manager pool. And, you know, the traditional route is, you know, they have to be part of the investment um, for us to be sort of in the mega search. And then we whittle that down through a kind of a, a due diligence questionnaire. Um, we actually inserted a, a, a second stage in that, which was a set of questions that we sent to a sort of further shortlist around how do you integrate um, sustainability issues into the way that you invest? Because we felt there was nothing we could get off the shelf or anything that they would provide us that would give us enough clarity on whether their understanding of sustainability as an alpha driver was aligned with ours. Because Again, as we all know, there's, you know, the, the SFDR and, and the EU and, and, and sort of others are trying to set up, and sorry, the Sustainable Finance um, Reporting Directive is trying to set up fund nomenclature around your sustainability fund or not, but it's, it's really hard to know what you're buying off the shelf. So we developed our own set of questions, our own DDQ specifically to sort of say, right, you're aligned with us or you're not. Now you make it into the smaller pool. And now this smaller pool, we're doing a traditional traditional DDQ yeah. around, you know, people process and everything yeah, else. Exactly. So on that, we had to reinvent an entire level of kind of like filter to help us. Um, on the private side, again, we are adding additional questions. We're adding additional kind of like expectations of sort of our external independent fiduciaries who help us to kind of assess whether the deals that we're looking at align with what we want to achieve. We need to get, you know, as you do those, I would love to help you get those um, case studies into the world because it could be that you're a role model, right? Like 
part of the reason we do case studies is we want the world of institutional investors to copy you and then they're investing in sustainable and on and on and on. So thank you for the work you're doing. Happy to. We're just so excited. Oh, no, thank you. Well, yeah, honestly, I'd love to, you know, to the extent where we want to share and learn, you know, let me be quite clear. It's not just about sharing. It's about we've got so much to continue to learn. Yeah. So to the extent we're able to do that, we, we want to be that team that's constantly curious. Well, I, like I, I love a team that's constantly curious and, you know, pushing public equity managers to to do more real sustainability. I mean, like, you know, there's a real leap of faith to be like, ah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do like a, a, you know, an out there lefty sustainability asset manager, <laughs> um, you know, and like the institutional supports and stuff like that are, are really not there to, to like, you know, yeah. differentiate these things from, you know, kind of like, you know, here we are, we graduated from Harvard Business School 10 years ago and, and it was the time of life that we, you know, the stars yeah. are right that we should start a fund, uh, you know. So, yeah, I mean, like, I really look forward to these case studies and to having you back on at some point to oh, discuss. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. All right. Good luck today. Long distance high five. And yeah, yeah, and, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, it's, I mean, like, sometimes when we record these things, I'm like, how do we get to do this? I know. Like, it's so fun. <laughs> it's so fun. Like, you know, she's so yeah. fabulous. Um, well, was... And candid and informed and, like, you know, really thinking about this stuff you know, in a, a highly bureaucratic, highly like overseen situation, right? Where like, you know, you think about, you know, the big California plans, like, oh gosh, yeah. are those, are those like, you know, magnets for scrutiny? No. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. But the cool thing there, she's like, yeah, we've deployed capital into this. We're investing in that. Like there are things happening and every single one of these are running through a return requirement of seven and a half percent or so, whatever the expected yeah. return target is, right? And so it'll be fabulous yes, as, as these things mature to watch how those performance numbers um, track. So exciting times. Yeah. Very exciting times. I uh, I have a brand new sound effect to share with you. Are you ready? Hit me. Uh, this is... Hey! <laughs> it's for building stuff is hard. <laughs> I love it. Hey! <laughs> Uh, it's a, is that, is that a report of hard? me? Yeah, 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 yeah. I actually, I, you know, I, you know, Henry and Beatrice have actually been on, on, you know, there, there are interns. Uh, That's true. Now they've been recording you grunting. Yeah, uh, yeah. crazy you know. kids. <laughs> Building uh, stuff is like, hard. I have a thing. Hard. Which I'm prepared. Which is also hard to prepare for the things that you're doing. Um, I've yet shaken my head. That's hard is giving feedback. Um, mm. I not that I I don't mind giving feedback. I don't want to ever kill somebody's momentum in the process mm. of giving feedback. I think momentum is the currency upon which we build things. Like yep, weight plus velocity. Right. You want to add weight to things and you want to move faster. And when you give feedback, you're saying what the weight of that is wrong or the speed is wrong and you need to take a step back. And so finding ways to like get people to continue to feel the speed and the weight of what they're doing, but also change. Um, I, you know, I, I've been doing this for a long time and I've been building so many different things that feedback is such an art and you know, I jokingly say I give, I use the shit sandwich approach where you give a big compliment up front 
classic. Yeah. Then you give classic. The, the negative and then you end with a big compliment. Um, and I find that works. But for me, that's always, that's always a challenge. And, you know, you have to give somebody feedback. Yeah. Yeah. I, I totally relate to that. I mean, the, I guess like, you know, the, I, you know, I'm in the like receiving feedback stage right now. Uh, and like the, it, it's really interesting because like you, there's like a subsection, I, I would say there's like, you get feedback where it's like, oh, you just kind of don't get it. Um, right. And that's fine. Like not everyone's going to get what, what, what's happening necessarily. Um, but you know, they're, they're really like, there is that kind of like, you know, overlap of like, doesn't get it, but get something else. And yeah. there's like a direct, uh, like applicability thing, um, where you can really just, you know, uh, like open, open a mind, change it, change a decision, change a momentum. I might change my answer. My question, hmm. my comment. Oh, you know what we're doing here? What are we doing? Comments, <laughs> telling things. Your observation. I think it's even harder to find the good nugget in feedback mm. because I I also get feedback a lot, and so that's yeah. probably why I know it's so hard for people to give feedback because and they often suck at it. But I, you know, and and in the world of academia, where you're getting like um, peer review reports all the time, like oh, you kind of like you know, half of them are, are baloney and they're like self-aggrandizing. And, and then half of those peer review reports are fabulous and really do improve your work. And so having yeah. like that fortitude to push past the emotion of being attacked and like use the good, like you're saying, like some part of it is good um, to improve what you do. That, that is also very hard. It's all hard. This shit is just hard. Yeah. That's why we have this segment on the podcast. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I would, I would say one of the things that I really, I mean, like, I guess I've been an entrepreneur for a while, uh, in various ways. Like I've been doing my consulting stuff and, uh, what I was doing at CFAI was, was pretty entrepreneurial, but like actually starting and running a business, et cetera. Um, you know, it really has a way of put, making you much more intellectually at risk. Yeah. Um, right. Like the, and, and like, that's kind of the benefit that I see to publishing and to podcasting and to getting thoughts out there all the time is like, you can kind of develop your thoughts and, and have people react to them. Um, but yeah, it really is like putting yourself out there, you know, put it, holding the proverbial boombox over your head outside of the, uh, the bedroom of your beloved at night. And you know, totally. just kind of like, I know what you're try, doing. Try, What's the yeah. song that he plays though? Uh, say anything is the movie. Isn't really? it really say anything where he's holding the boombox and it's playing the, the amazing song outside. I mean, maybe, maybe originally, but Cusack. The, it's such a Cusack. It, it is Cusack. Oh yeah. The and movie he, say anything. Like, it's a fabulous movie. He, and he's just like standing there miserably with a, with like a, a, a little box. box over his head. Uh, the, but, in your eyes, your yeah. <laughs> that's what's up. This is how we do it on the top. I got it. <laughs> oh man. Good down my butt. It's good. Oh, entrepreneurship and academia, I would argue are fail fast machines. So they help you yep. identify failures faster and you mm -hmm. learn from those failures, either in the form of feedback or reviews or knows in the form of entrepreneurship. And I think yep. that's like what makes those worlds special, but that implies that you have to be ready to fail and, and deal with the pain of anywho. Yeah. I mean, my thing, uh, I guess for this, this week is DNS systems. 
<laughs> Are you uh, well, so I like I had um a you know a thing like I made a couple changes on the back end of Invest Vegan um to kind of speed it up, et cetera. Um and you know, harden it against attack because there are a lot of, you know, kind of older folks that that kind of, you know, use the site and I don't want to be, you know, man in the middle or whatever. Um but uh, you know, the the thing that's been really interesting to me is like uh, something something magical happened and I started getting like a couple inbound leads a day uh, a little while ago. Um, I don't know who or why necessarily, um, but it, it, you know, it really is like kind of this crazy, it's like, you know, when you plant a seed and all of a sudden stuff starts happening, but it happens like totally outside of your control and you just sort of have to observe as closely as you can. Um, and uh, I think that moving from the process of like, you know, where you have the spreadsheet and you have the, um, like, you know, you, the sketch of what you're doing and you explain it to your friends and you're, and, and they're like, that's not crazy, actually. <laughs> um, to like the point where you're like, oh, crap, I need instrumentation to ask questions about what the hell is happening here. I don't have any of totally. it. <laughs> you know, and it's like, and it's all like marketing instrumentation. It's not, it's not investment tooling. You know, it's like, how are people behaving on the website? Interesting. You know, you know um... and this is why there should be like an opportunity for the asset owners to outperform, but they are just dysfunctional. Mm -hmm. You're having to spend a lot of money on like just understanding your clients. Um, yep. And this is this weird, strange world that we exist in, right? Where like the asset managers have to spend a lot of money to understand client needs, demands, objectives, in addition to the investment portfolio. Um, yep. yeah, it's hard. I can only imagine what you're like having to design and build in order to manage all that. You know, honestly, my, my number one tip for overcoming that is. <laughs> I'm proud of you. <laughs> Thank you, my friend. <laughs> I had to do it. I wasn't saying anything moments. It was deep. You, that was very picture, that was very good. The boombox. Yep. It is yep. Uh, to make light of what you're working it, on. No, no. It. I mean, it. Like, I, honestly, my my number one hack is uh, dating a software engineer who knows a lot about the tooling. That is good. <laughs> yeah. That uh, was my hack you in, know, in college. Uh, marrying somebody smarter than me. Uh, it really works. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I like I, I I plan to use it. Uh, you know. Uh, <laughs> As much as possible. I mean, not in the like, you know, I, some people might know I have Mormon heritage. I don't mean that I intend to be to start a large polygamous <laughs> family. <laughs> Wait there. <laughs> um, anyway, time to move to the next section. Oh, man. I saw these questions earlier. There's a doozy. There's a doozy in here. These are, yeah. Yeah, it's really like uh, the cadence is just, you know, from chill to crazy. Um, this is the Dear Ashby segment of the show. This, you know, for anyone who's, you know, maybe this is your first episode. Um, you know, this is where we answer questions from you, specifically Ashby answers mm. questions from you. And then I opine if I have opines to opine. Opinions, uh, I believe they're called. Op opinions. Um, and perhaps also. A kitty cat. Sammy the cat will, will opine. I will Sammy. Um, yeah. Yeah. She's, she's, she's just, she's a very, very, very personality cat. 
Um, so first question is, what's your seed start uh, starting setup look like? I mean, we just use, we just reuse all the little planter stuff that we get from the plant store and put seeds in those. Yep. Um, in fact, I have like a little baby oak tree that was like literally out of an acorn that we shoved in there. And I can see it outside right now. And it's leafing. I, for like most of the winter, I thought it was dead. That's like, I'll just oh, that's keep so watering cool. it. Um, and then I often put those little planter things just out on the edge of the lawn so that I don't forget mm. to water them the lawn gets watered three mm. times a week. Um, and, and also I just admit that like being in California, it's just so much easier. Like sometimes you can just like literally put seeds in the ground and forget about them and then be like, Oh shit, there, that thing's growing. <laughs> you know? You know? Yeah. I do. I do literally, I, I do often forget that you're in California. <laughs> so, uh, so lucky compared to like people with frozen tundra, you know, it's a great gardening hack. Uh, yeah, live in a big you know, place. Yeah, uh, the I mean, uh, this, you know, seed starting though, pretty like it's not that hard to to do if you if you happen to be in the tundra, you just get like in that little six six ninety nine pallet from from Home Depot. Um, do you have a seed starting? Next question. I'm curious. Ooh, oh yeah. Um, well, so what we did is, um, you know, seeds. My my number one seed starting ha hack is just order your damn seeds early yeah, because half seeds. Is that have seeds yeah yeah that's my main <laughs> my main my main my main hack um because like it's it's remarkably difficult actually to get good seeds uh in a timely fashion um more and more every year because people are getting into gardening we're all thinking about our homes the pandemic etc um you know so I, I think that we had to order our seeds from like five different vendors um and some of them are taking three plus weeks to ship um you know so yeah but we, I mean, we have like a nice little ikea shelf with some some lights on top of it and uh, a bunch of morning glories and snapdragons and cotton plants mm. blooming that will that will uh you know kind of throw out into the frozen frozen roof before too long um this this question is like from a close close listener of the fund uh of the pod you mentioned your of the pod of the pod <laughs> <Ooh>. <laughs> <laughs> that was a that was a sound effect. That wasn't me just regularly farting. Um, you mentioned your experience with the Russian Sovereign Wealth Fund in an earlier pod. If you are working on a new and similar project for a country like Iran, say, that may become hostile to the West in the future, what changes would you make based on that experience? I'll start this by saying I just love our listeners. That is a fabulous <laughs> question. Right. Like, I know I, right? I saw that come in and I was like, God dang, like these, there's some pretty freaking like with it, human beings listen. That's a good job you out there that asked me the yeah. tough question. Uh, because then I have to say that's practice like, right there. You know, I got to actually, I owe our community a response because, you know, did I help? Have I been helping the bad guys? Um, some context on the project that, that occurred with the Russian, um, direct investment fund. So I was never paid by that, right? Like, like I hmm. have helped to build a not-for-profit in Canada called the Institutional Investors Roundtable that works on behalf of the asset owners, um, Canada Pension Plan, Ontario Teachers, GIC, et cetera, et cetera. Um, got about $15 trillion of capital around the table, table. And our goal has been to find novel access points to avoid the cost of private equity. Have you heard me talk before? 
That's what I do. <laughs> yes. I try to get what the fee structures. <laughs> uh, and and so this was 2012, 2013. This is before the invasion of of uh, Crimea, I believe. Was that 2014 yep. Crimea? Um, and RDIF, um, even before it was called RDIF, was uh, a member in the in the in the IIR. And so they, you know, again, it was a not-for-profit. So I was never paid by them. And in this case, you know, I have to say the idea of building a platform to facilitate development and explicitly, which the RDIF was about, was deepening relationships across borders. So helping overseas investors get access into the Russian context. And oh, by the way, the model of the RDIF has been replicated and uh, India with the NIIF, Turkey, now in Indonesia. You can almost argue some of the French stuff is very similar. And so from me looking at it, now I'm going to reveal some of my more, uh, call it, dare I say, conservative thinking. If we can build economic links across these countries, then ideally we create higher cost of conflict because of the economic links, right? Um and that that I would have hoped and did hope and explicitly thought would have reduced geopolitical risk because the international reliance on Russia and Russia's reliance on the international community for investment capital, et cetera, et cetera, would have kind of increased that cost. What I what I think is harder to see is like he just didn't, you know, Putin just didn't care. You know, like he yep. he sees this as a purge of of all the bad guys. And so then the question is, you know, have I taken anything away from this? Would I go and do work with Iran? And I love that question because Iran on the one hand is a democracy in the Middle East. Um, uh, there's like, some would say that the people are, um, you know, aside from like the government, there, pretty progressive. And that, you know, if we yeah. could build more economic links between Iran and the West, um, maybe it would minimize the chance of a nuclear war or them doing something stupid like bombing Israel. You know, I think the real fear I have is when people are isolated behind a curtain, dare I say an iron curtain, and mm. don't feel like there are costs associated with doing something really bellicose. Um mm. Yeah. So I, I, would I do it? I, I don't think I would. I think my wife would probably, you know, as a Canadian, my Canadian passport can get me into Iran. I'm not that worried about it, but I, I don't have plans to do it. Um, you know, that's, uh, my wife would be like, what the hell are you doing? But I, I think part of me just sees these like international, um, projects as like reducing the geopolitical risk than increasing it. I don't know. I'm happy to like take critiques and feedback on that, but uh, what do you think? I mean, I, I would, you know, I think that this is one of those like classic benchmarking things where it's like, you know, the what shows up on the benchmark right now is at time T, right? Like, you know, whatever it was three weeks ago, some people were invested in Russia. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, but what doesn't show up in the benchmarking is that like McDonald's opened in Russia in the 90s yeah. and like, you know, greatly increased uh, you know, cultural linkages between these two countries that were like literally on the brink of blowing up the world for a very long time. Yeah. Um, you know, and like created all kinds of jobs, created all kinds of prosperity. Um, you know, so like 
I, I think you kind of have to like, <laughs> I mean, in a, I mean, it's an absurd exercise to try and do, but from, from a, like a theoretical perspective, you could go and say, all right, so, you know, what are the, the, you know, I guess in healthcare interventions, they think in terms of qualities, like quality adjusted human life years, mm-hmm. um, you know, that are, you know, made by like funding a bunch of malaria nets. Right. And you could kind of, if you were say the Gates foundation, you could denominate your humanitarian interventions in terms of the number of quality, quality adjusted life years that you could buy by funding them in various different places. This is kind of a digression I'm realizing, but. No, go uh, with it. run with it. Yeah. 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 So, but like, so, so let's say like, you know, we start with taking the heat off of me. I'm loving it. (laughs) So like, who wants to talk about a really, like a a relatively obscure concept in development economics? Uh, (laughs) um, But like, you know, so I would argue that, you know, giving people jobs and things to do and, and, you know, creating like uses for capital domestically, you know, as a substantial boost to quality adjusted human life years. Um, on the flip side, like, you know, um, having anything to do with Russia, arguably, uh, you know, has a negative effect on the number of quality adjusted human life years, given that they're engaged in a war of aggression, aggression and choice at the mm-hmm. moment. Um, and, you know, every dollar that went into the country and circulated domestically and was saved and invested and taxed, um, you know, could theoretically be argued, uh, you know, had a directed a modicum of funding towards that, um, you know, but like, I think that you have to think about it in terms of the veil of ignorance that we operate in mm-hmm. as investors. And like, and it's like a John Stuart Mill, like ethical mm-hmm. concept that I don't, I don't see people talk about enough in like <laughs> capital markets. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like uh, the, cause like, I mean, you can't know what's going to happen uh, you know, 25 years from now, uh, like, or 10 years from now or three years from now, um, you can just kind of do your best and try to build bridges, you know? So, um, and you can be open like to the critique. I mean, this, the thing that's so interesting about this moment, this question, which I, I truly like loved because it forced me to be like, what would I do? You know, one, one, I don't think I would accept payment from a, from a bad acting country for, for this. I think that just feels bad. But I also think I would help them impl- implement good governance to avoid, um, yeah, like graft. And I've done that. I mean, I won't mention the country in the middle, you know, in the middle of Asia uh, that I went to. <laughs> I don't want to get in trouble. But but like there were accusations that the subsoil assets in that country were being pilfered, and by showing up and yep. showing them like how to design a fiscal rule and how to design this like a professional investment program, how to oversee that with proper governance and accountability. Like ideally you are helping avoid the corruption in certain places yeah, by bringing good governance to them. And doesn't that then put them on a trajectory to maybe not being as corrupt? It's very hard. Well, it, it, you know. well and, you know, and then you get into like the trolley problem of like, you know, okay, so you see this thing happening, you know enough about sovereign wealth funds that a disaster is plausible, <laughs> right? Like if, yeah, no matter you've what you've seen happens, one MVP, right? right? Yeah. You've seen yeah, the, yeah. the movie on Netflix about it. Like there, these things happen if they have bad governance and right, Goldman Sachs helped them do that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And like, you know, and they'll call up, you know, like some reputable seeming Western firm and whatever. And like, you know, and then maybe they'll put up the, you know, the Ashby, Ashby Monk bat signal. Um, and if you don't respond to that, 
do you have an ethical, yeah. uh, you know, first of all, there, can we invent that? The bat signal, the Ashby, the Ashby monk bat signal. What is it, is it like the giant boofy hair, like shot up into the cloud? <laughs> I just like, I'm now, <laughs> I'm now picturing like, what is my equivalent? I, I mean, I think it's like when any any government anywhere issues a press release, it's like, we're starting a new inward-focused development. <laughs> ah, true. Yeah. We're building a sovereign development fund to attract foreign capital. <laughs> it's like, you know, they just turned on a spotlight and the bat is up on the clouds. Yeah. Ashby shows yeah, up like it's, deep voice. Hello. Yes. If Chris governments pays off. Hello, people of Turkmenistan. Last question. Uh, assuming disclosure and governance are managed appropriately, uh, what percentage of a long-term investment, 30-plus year horizon portfolio should be invested in private assets? Okay. So I love the last question. This question, dear listener, I'm going to edit a little bit, okay? Even mm -hmm. though I love it. Mm -hmm which I do, but dear listener, I don't think the question should be disclosure governance and private assets. I think it should be assuming you understand the liquidity profile. So like when I need to get mm. cash out of this fund yep, um, and how much should be invested in equity risk? Uh, because the, like we now know the continuum from private to public is has just dramatically changed. And as new marketplaces emerge, like the ability to get access to say private equities is much different than it was even seven years ago. And so yep. with your permissions flown, I would say how much of a fund should we invest that as a 30 year kind of like capital accumulation phase where we don't need to take cash out. Um, and, how much should we be putting in equity risk? And I would say almost 80% would be in equity risk. Mm -hmm. Now, if we're doing like the traditional product buckets, I think people would say private, in my mind, means more liquidity risk, uh, which mm -hmm. is a, a way to boost returns, or at least used to be. Uh, yep. I would say, again, if you have a 30-year time horizon, um, you can just fill your boots with this stuff. Right. Like, you know, you, you want to be able to model your cash flows to make sure you're able to meet a drawdown and meet your um, pacing commitments. Remember, putting money into private markets means you have a five year drawdown period where capital is being called. So you need to have pretty good systems in place to manage that effectively. All that being said. Um, you could put huge amounts into these private markets. And I think a long-term investor that works wonders because it ties you to the mast, so to speak, and forces you to think long-term. Um, anyway, so I'm mixing and matching here my responses, but I would say take a ton of equity risk, take as much e-liquidity private market, you know, investing as you want, but model it very effectively so you never miss a capital call. Um, and I think that would be a way to maximize returns. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Okay. Yeah, and well, and like I, I, I think that you know the distinction that you're drawing between equity risk and like say credit risk and liquidity risk in in assessing these sorts of things it's not a subtle point. Uh, you know, from a practical standpoint, right? Like the you know because like the the way that we're used to thinking about it in these product buckets that you talked about is like 
okay, well, there's like the expensive, you know, super fee paying portion of the portfolio that like, you know, the ghost of Dave, David Swenson at Yale, like will haunt you if you have less than 40% of your long-term portfolio in, 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 um, in privates. Um, but is that private credit? Like, are you lending money to consumers? Are you, uh, you know, lending money to growth companies? Are you, uh, or, or are you investing in climate solutions directly? Those are all private and they all have such different risk profiles. Um, almost like the private markets have a vast spectrum of things inside of them. Yes. It's almost as if like categories like that aren't that useful. It's yeah, it's almost like we need to queer the boundaries between uh, <laughs> these these accepted uh, buckets. Um, so, yeah, we're, we're running a little long. So let's cut to the garden tip. <laughs> yeah, so the accent that it's actually I mean, let's. That like, you know, I, I think we promised the listeners some accents at the top of it. And, you know, what we gave them is uh, they had John Malcolm. Not, is that Peter Gabriel? That is Peter Gabriel. Yeah. Um, but I, like, it's not John Malkovich. It's John Cusack. Cusack. That's <laughs> John Cusack. I always confuse those two guys. Are you, you know? trying to <laughs> Chicago accent now? A sh- you, a Chicago? No, I can't. You? You? <laughs> you? I feel like a Malkovich impression impression is like a really good impression to have, though. Uh, have you seen Space Force? Yeah, I mean, very good. It is very good, unbelievably good television. I mean, uh, we binged it. My family. The next season came out, and we was like gone. What the two days done? Yep. Anyway, there's your yep. tip. That's not a gardening tip. That's a tip. It's just a tip. Yeah. You got to get on that space force. Um, yeah. I mean, like, uh, aside from order seeds, I'm going to go with, um, you know, think about like, I, I mean, I guess, you know, if you, if you use potting soil, if you grow in containers, you should be aware that peat, peat moss, which is one of the most common ingredients in gardening soil is not sustainable at all. Is a carbon emitter. Yeah, so 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 peat bogs are one of the most potent carbon sinks in, that are naturally occurring. Oh, yeah. um, so shouldn't the, be pulling out of there. Exactly. Yeah. So so when we when we I mean, there's no way to get peat moss out of a a peat bog other than like literally strip mining it. Uh, you know, where you like cut it up into little blocks and like pick it up and move it. Um, you know, so like the in the U.S. we have an easier time with this because our peat. Uh, industry is um our peat imports usually come from canada which is a newer industry and it let f- less of the peat bugs have been harvested but in the uk and you know in all sorts of other places they're already enacting legislation to make the you know using peat moss in your gardening soil illegal uh yeah so hobbyists in the uk won't be able to use it after 2024 i think and a professional horticulturalists won't be able to use it after 2030 in the mm. uk uh, you know, so if you're trying to move away from it, um, it's not a chill process. <laughs> really? Um, it's not simple. I mean, cause like, you know, sphagnum moss, which is like the main ingredient in peat moss is like a, just a perfect ingredient for, uh, you know, cultivating anything, hmm. uh, in all sorts of, uh, environments, right? It, it retains moisture well, it retains nutrition well, it's just great. 
Hmm. Um, and it's relatively inexpensive too, wow. uh, because we don't really tax the externalities. So um, my tip would be like r- right now I'm going through the experiments I did last year to try and get off of peat moss. And I did all kinds of crazy shit. Uh, Go on. Like I tried growing plants in pots that were just cocoa coir, for instance. And that is dumb. Where did you first? Yeah, yeah. So, so basically, my tip is, um, like, take seriously getting off of this stuff as you're buying peat moss, but don't just jump, you know, from one thing to another because it will be very, very discouraging. Um, you know, so you know, take the time to. I mean, you know, if you're listening to this podcast, the odds are that you can afford to spend thirty five dollars on various you know, different kinds of soil amendments. Um, you know, so when you go to the garden center, look around, buy, buy five different things that don't have peat moss in and try, try, try them. Beautiful. Um, you know, because by 2025, you probably should not be using it. Um, you know, so I, like, I guess, you know, maybe we could get people to make the, the, the peat free by 2025 pledge, uh, as a compliment to the, uh, you know, yes, zero by 2020, but by 2050. We got to get the word bog in our slogan somehow. <laughs> bog. Your bogs will thank you. Or yeah, Barney the Bog. getting bogged down. Bog. It's up. Yeah, let, let's get bogged up instead of bogged down, right? <laughs> well done. My We're gardening ready. tip is uh, much more high level. In, the, in, a, in a small way, you may suspect I forgot. Uh <laughs> Mine, just before the pod, though, I went out. My jasmine is blooming, okay? Mm. And it's here. It's almost April. We're in March, April here. Um, Things are blooming all over this yard. And I was just going to tell everybody, like, this is the moment that, like, we do all this for. So, like, make sure you stop and smell the stuff. I was just transported to like seven-year-old Ashby, like just before this, Aww. by smelling that jasmine. I was like, you know how smells trigger all the. I was like, yep. only got. I can remember being a kid <laughs> smelling this. You're smell. just like, tra- you're transported. It's like I'm picturing like seven-year-old Ashby still with the same amount of crazy hair. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Talking about pigeons, you, you know, yeah, exactly. Just like. Ah, that jasmine smells like it's got a great governance structure. <laughs> jasmine is so good. I mean, when you smell jasmine it and it's blooming, it's like, holy yacht. I know why they made soap mm. out of this stuff. It is fabulous. <laughs> uh, yeah. That's like, anyway. Well, I mean, if only I could get soap that smells like my compost, which is truly the best smell. <laughs> Beautiful. On that note. All right. We love you. Bye. Bye. You all. Bye. Mm-hmm. I'm